Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country of the Kulin Nations, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. On this week's show, we hear from three queer Aboriginal women. Laniat Garçon, Sandy O'Sullivan and Samia Gowdy have contributed to the brand new book, Colouring the Rainbow, Black, Queer and Trans Perspectives. They're just a few of the 22 contributors that share their stories for this book, which is perhaps the only one of its kind to look at the experience of being Aboriginal and queer in Australia. Editor Dino Hodge gave contributors an open slate, asking them to write about whatever they liked. What came out is a diverse range of stories and essays. No two are alike, and their uniqueness is a testament to just how much we need to hear them. Stay tuned to hear Samia talk about being queer amidst the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. And Sandy O'Sullivan shares insights of identity and intersectionality. But first, here's Laniac Gasson, who was born to a French mother and a Larrakia father, and who grew up in Adelaide. She's the author of The Conflicts of Camouflage. I'm basically divulging my life story um, and outlining the different ways that my cultural and sexual identity have kind of been a little bit incognito. Um, When you look at me, you wouldn't automatically think that I was one, Aboriginal, or possibly two, queer. And um, that's played quite a heavy role in my life, particularly when I was younger, um, kind of being camouflaged into heteronormativity and growing up in predominantly white communities, I experienced a lot of racism that wasn't directly uh, given to me, but that I witnessed. And that shaped my perception of myself. When you've got people saying things about Aboriginal people or making homophobic comments, as a, a young person and an insecure young person, it kind of shapes this idea of who you are and how people perceive you. And entering adulthood with that mentality of there being something wrong with being Aboriginal and something wrong with being queer, it was quite a battle to shake that off and grow out of that. You talk about passing because, yeah, as you mentioned, you passed as not being recognised as Mm -hmm. being Aboriginal for most of your life and also not being stereotypically Mm. queer. Mm. So people kind of assumed heteronormativity and assumed a whiteness upon you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, (laughs) I've heard some horrendous things in my time. And, you know, the the earlier parts of my life, I had a strong connection to family and a strong connection to culture. And having a a name like Laniuk, you can't escape that. You know, as soon, even booking appointments online, oh, what name is it under? Laniuk. Oh, that's an interesting name. Where's that from? Like, I can't escape my culture, which I love. I love that about my name. Um, But not looking Aboriginal meant that I heard some absolutely horrendous things. I I mentioned in the essay that my year 10 maths teacher um, said that one of the girls in the class wouldn't pass as Aboriginal because she wasn't sitting on the side of the road sniffing petrol. (laughs) And, I mean, what what is that supposed to mean to a a 14-, 15-year-old who is battling uh, racism on the daily? That's going to affect me. Mm. but people don't really think about that if they don't know that there's an Aboriginal person in the room and they think they can get away with saying those sorts of things, Mm. and they do. 
And that makes it, I guess, harder in a way. You spoke about a double coming out, yeah. coming out as queer and then also coming out as Aboriginal. Yeah. Um, every every day, <laughs> every person I meet. And I, I also mentioned in the essay that I never know how people are going to react to that. You know, we, you know, as queer people, we never know how our boss is going to react or how our friends are going to react or how our family members are going to react when we tell them that we're queer. And I have the same thing with being Aboriginal because there's a lot of prejudice and there's a lot of racism. And I have had some really horrible reactions. And so being white passing and, and potentially uh, passing as a, as a heteronormative person, that gave me the option as a child and in my younger years to just dismiss my culture and dismiss my sexuality and just go along pretending like I was white and straight. Yeah. And with the double coming out, you talk about how you discover two separate communities and families in a way as well. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? You mentioned your name as well, Lana Yak, and yeah. discovering the meaning of that name that had always been. Yeah. I think that the queer community and the, the coming out process is such a, a beautiful such a beautiful moment such a beautiful day when you when you become comfortable with yourself and you you kind of walk down the street and you're like yeah I know who I am and that just kind of gave me that burst of energy and that that fire to to keep being who I am and keep being keep being me and that propelled itself into my cultural identity and made me want to discover and made me want to go back home and make me want to reconnect with my my father after not seeing him for I think it was 11 maybe 13 years I think I was between 6 and 19 I hadn't seen him the things that I'd learned in coming out once you once you come out you know you can't go back you know and it makes you want to discover everything about yourself and it makes you want to be proud of everything that you are and so I just had to take that to the next level and I reconnected with my family and and of course, then gaining strength from the Aboriginal community, which is such a beautiful and strong community itself that in the same, in similar ways, has had to, has had to tackle bigotry and has, has this sense of resilience. Um, and so I feel very fortunate to be part of those communities. Mm. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you finally, what, what do you think is the importance of writing and sharing these personal stories. I mean, in this book, there's 22 different contributors, but yeah. a lot of those stories are deeply personal stories. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's not an easy thing to put out there. Like <laughs> no. It makes one yourself very vulnerable. Definitely. Um, but how important is it to share these stories and what's the, yeah, what motivates you, I guess? There are so many things in this essay that I have never even told <laughs> my closest friends. I've never been comfortable discussing it. And, you know, even in the writing process, there were times that I cried or there were times that I hesitated and I thought, what am I doing? Maybe I'll just pull out. Why Why would I do this to myself? People are going to be reading this. My family's going to be reading this. My friend's going to be reading it. Strangers are going to be reading it. Why would I do this? But it felt, it felt like such a necessary opportunity to take. I think these, this is a topic that not much coverage has been made on, on the experience of queer Indigenous people in Australia. Maybe someone out there will read the essay and just think to themselves, wow, someone else experienced that. I, I, cause there must be, there must be someone out there who has had these feelings and someone out there who has, has felt invisible. And I think this book gives some visibility to the 22 contributors and to people outside of it who are experiencing similar things. So I think the book really is about visibility. 
You've been hearing from Laniac Gasson on Community Radio Around Australia. You're listening to Women on the Line. I'm Nicole Kirby. Today we're hearing from three Aboriginal women talking about their experience of being black and queer. They're contributing authors for the new book, Colouring the Rainbow, Black, Queer and Trans Perspectives. Here's Sandy O'Sullivan, author of Stranger in a Strange Land, Aspiration, Uniform and the Fine Edges of Identity. Isn't it wacky that there's never been a book like this before? It's hard to believe, you know. So there's never been an edited volume um, that is about being queer and black in Australia, which is just crazy. Um, and so, so this piece that um, that I've I've written um, is a little unlike the usual work that I write. So I'm a researcher, which means that I write all the time. It's a ridiculously personal piece. As I think all of the pieces in the book really have um, some connection back, and a lot of them are deeply personal, you know, and I think that's the power of it. Um, I almost don't know how you could do a book like this um, without it having um, that kind of personal connection back, you know, so it cast me back to being a kid in the 70s, uh, in Townsville and what it was to be both Aboriginal and I guess I can't say that I thought I was a lesbian then because I didn't and I, to be honest with you, somebody had to tell me when I was 19 what a lesbian was so didn't quite know that so I definitely wasn't um, but also I didn't really understand the connection between gender and sexuality. Doing my PhD I actually learnt that most people don't understand that connection And so I had to then cast back to how difficult it was, even in the lived experience of one person, to be able to both isolate and connect those things up. And so that's really what it's about. It's about saying, look, you know, over the journey of a life, we actually have access or we don't have access to a whole lot of different things. Um, You know, I didn't have a very good early education. I didn't learn how to read until I was a teenager. I didn't, you know, finish school or anything like that. I dropped out when I was 13 and, you know, and worked. And and that was all good. Which is incredible because now you've just told me you're doing your second PhD. (laughs) I'm doing my second PhD. Maybe that's why, you know, I need need that education now. No, look, I, I think the whole process of education is wonderful, but I, you know, for a whole lot of reasons, you know, fell through the gaps. And... Uh, and I think that part, some of those reasons I realise now are actually about how much I fitted in. And so some of this is about how, and I think that the book generally is about how we don't fit in, but also about how most people don't. <laughs> you know, so this happens to point to Aboriginality as a marker of not just identity, but also in some ways what you're not which is all of those other things that aren't that. And, of course, you know, gender and sexuality operate that way too. So, you know, one of the things that happened to me throughout my whole life was that I came out when I was 29 um, and I spent most of the years before that having to come out as straight to people because everybody thought I was a lesbian until suddenly I worked out I was. And so I'd say, oh, no, I'm completely straight. Um, you know, and it was and it was ridiculous, you know. But I didn't it didn't it didn't work for me it didn't gel for me I didn't really think it through um, so no wonder I'm doing a second PhD I need that education um, but, I, but sometimes it is how we process this and and the complexity of our, um, our I think our identities um, is a part of this and I think gender and sexuality 
we conflate them all the time. I mean, in, in, in queer culture, we do it so much that, in fact, queerness becomes this kind of mask around both, you know, mm. and it, it can be problematic um, because I can, I can make jokes like, oh, I had to come out straight and everybody knows what I mean because although this is on the radio, <laughs> you look me up, Sandy O'Sullivan, I'll look like a great big dyke, but what does that look like? You know, and, and I think now we have a sense, a much greater sense that people can look anyway and mm. it has nothing to do with that. And in some ways it does. And so I'm very interested in, you know, in that and, mm. and my PhD was around that. So. Mm. And, I mean, it is an interesting position that you were placed in basically where in a way you were being read as white but you were also being read as queer. Mm. And for a while, I mean, you kind of identified <laughs> with the inverse the of that. And yeah, then, yeah. but, you know, coming to terms with both of those identities is a process in itself. And for a while, you almost kind of, I think, felt that they were mutually exclusive. You could have oh. one, but not the other. Oh, not just me. Other people would say that. I, I've just, not so long ago, maybe 10 years ago, I remember going to a conference. Um, I won't say what the conference is, but it was, you know, sort of a history conference. Um, where there was, uh, I was told very specifically that I had to pick one or the other in terms of a, sort of a formal identity that would be discussed, that people would find it confusing. And I remembered at the time thinking that's really weird, like somebody saying you can't be one and the other. I mean, nowadays it's rare for people to talk about that. It's rare for people to say you can't have these, you know, separate identities that also link in in some meaningful way. But it's as though you have to kind of um, find the connections between them. And, of course, the connection between them is here in my body. I mean, that's just, it is what it is, and it's here in a lot of people's bodies. On Women on the Line, you're listening to Sandy O'Sullivan talking about her identity as a queer Aboriginal woman. I asked her about the politics of intersectionality. I, I think with intersectionality, one of the really tricky things with it is, you know, it's, it's this idea that's been um, positioned by Kimberly Crenshaw uh, and it was a beautiful positioning. It was done uh, 20 years ago um, and she's a lawyer, African-American lawyer, who was arguing that when somebody is, um, when a woman specifically not somebody but a woman, is black, poor um, in America. This was the context that she had framed, um, that these, these elements compound and that it's not one plus one plus one. It's one plus a million plus a trillion and that, in fact, it results in her appearing before a judge, for instance, you know, because she's a lawyer, so she's thinking about the legal space, and uh, and getting a significantly harsher sentence than a white woman in exactly the same situation. And so she talks about that, uh, and she talks about how intersectionality works in that way. How it's been reapplied is uh, to suggest that you could be um, poor and queer and, uh, I don't know, vegetarian. Uh, I'm vegetarian, so I'm not picking on vegetarians. <laughs> um, and that these, thing, these three things make me stronger because I'm these three things that I should be proud of. But it wasn't applied to talk about pride. It was actually applied to talk about um, disempowerment. And it's really important that we don't co-opt these terms that are actually really helpful 
in interrogating why a judge looks at someone and sees an irredeemable person and someone looks at someone else and sees the potential for redemption, you know, and to talk about the power and the strength of all of these terrible things happening to you is not a very helpful co-opting of it when, in fact, you're trying to talk about disadvantage in that way. It's about power, and to, you know, to turn that on, on its head isn't that helpful. Mm. And so I guess from that perspective, it's not easy. Look, this isn't, you know, there's no easy way to explain intersectionality, mm. and, this, and it's one of the reasons why it's been co-opted. Mm. Um, but it's that com- complex stuff that I think it's good for us to talk through and, you know, and other people would say, oh, intersectional is just a word. It just means things intersecting. That's fine, except that it actually was a term that was coined. And I think there's been so few terms coined by uh, women of colour that I actually think there's a really strong argument for maintaining that. And Crenshaw spent the last 20 years kind of saying, it doesn't mean that, it means this, you know, Mm. for a reason, you know, not because she's obstinate, but because she's trying to make a point about, uh, in in a way that's actually going to help people, Mm. you know. And and I think, you know, probably used effectively, it's actually quite a useful tool Um, particularly for the feminist movement, which is often criticised as an exclusive movement that privileges very much middle-class white women. Precisely. But it does mean that you have to hear difference and you have to not try and homogenise difference. And that's been one of the problems, is that there's been a lot of containing um, the idea of diversity. Um, And if you contain the idea of diversity, you know, we know that that actually is what forms middle class um, and and dominant culture. So whether it's white or whatever, but it's but dominant culture will always be the winner in that space, um, you know. And so, of course, that means that the people who have the most access are within that space. And that's Mm. tricky. I mean, Mm. it is. And I think that's a beautiful thing about this book as well, is that all the stories that come through are very unique. And even just speaking to you, Mm. you. and Laniac, I mean, your stories are quite different. You know, your identities yeah. are quite different yeah. and the personal histories that you have bring out these very unique stories so that, yeah, so that di- that diversity sort of can't be completely reined in, which is quite a beautiful thing that this book explores. Look, that's what's important about it too. I mean, one thing that we know is that people will often think of Aboriginal people as all being the same. The gender and sexuality provides this burrowing point to say you can't do that. You know, within feminism, I mean, there are lots of stories of feminism that weren't being told 40 years ago. You know, there there certainly were. And there's a lot more that are being told now, and that's wonderful. Mm. You know, so because there's many ways to be a feminist, of course, and and part of that is about being able to listen to people's stories. And in order to listen to stories, they have to be told. And they have to be told from your own perspective. You know, when you use your own voice, you actually hear something different. Mm. So somebody writing about me and retelling that story would not be able to talk about it in a very specific way. One of the things that I do make a point of is that I don't speak for other people and I don't think you can, you know. So this isn't the, you know, Aboriginal lesbian story of, you know, of somebody who is, who has lived a certain way. It's my story. And, you know, but I still think that from that other people can learn a little about what it is to be in the world. You know, it it starts with one book and then there's more. (laughs) Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
You've been hearing from Sandy O'Sullivan, Wiradjuri woman and senior researcher at Bachelor Institute of Tertiary Education in the Northern Territory. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. I'm Nicole Kirby, and we're hearing from three Aboriginal women talking about their queer experience as told in the recent book, Colouring the Rainbow. Finally, here's Samia Gowdy speaking about her essay, My Story, Your Story, Our Story, Recollections of Being Aboriginal and Queer in the 1980s and 90s. At 22, I found myself in San Francisco and uh, living in the Castro, which is the main area in San Francisco, where at that time it was a very vibrant gay community, lesbian community as well. And um, I actually worked in a shop in um, on the Castro and... It was right at that time that, um, you know, people didn't even really know what HIV was or AIDS was. It was this mysterious illness that was knocking people out right, left and centre, um, and young people, and very quickly. Um, and I'll never forget that because it was like watching a community just disintegrate and a level of fear that I hadn't been around, I don't think. Um, and you know, caring about a number of my friends who were young in their 20s who were very, very ill and a number of them passed away. That was the beginning of my work really in that area because I became involved in looking after a number of my uh, friends who went through that and did pass away uh, and then got sadly sought after by other people and um, did a lot of training around... um, death and dying and living and palliative care and hospice and uh, uh, looking after people in that way. All of us were really in our 20s and early 30s. We facilitated a lot of um, meetings and, and groups where people got together and shared about what was going on for them and and trying to address the level of grief that people were feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I speak about that in the story in terms of... Um, you know, one thing that really stood out for me at one of those gatherings was how many, um, particularly the young men, were saying, you know, I don't have anyone left in my address book anymore, you know, mm. and just how dramatic that was for people to lose so many people so quickly. Women on the line. When I came back to Australia, then I moved to the Illawarra and basically was asked by the elders in that area if I would take on a position... It was a new position, basically, which was um, working with HIV, AIDS and sexual health, um, particularly around education, health education and promotion. And how was it coming from San Francisco, which is, you know, a gay hub, I guess, like it's an icon as a place, and then coming back to the Illawarra and working within the Aboriginal community on similar issues? What, What was the feeling like in the Illawarra region and how is it different? What was your experience of that like? Yeah, I think um, it was very different because also, you know, it was so impactful in America and it was right at the beginning. And um, and uh, also the education programs in America were terrible and um, the response was quite slow in terms of, um, you know, having needle exchanges and things like that. So by the time I got back to Australia, needle exchanges was a very sort of well-set-up program. Um, you know, we had had the Grim Reaper and some of those terrible ads, but it was definitely moving more into prevention. And then we had 
really our first case of someone on the south coast who was a young man who did get HIV and ended up in hospital with um, complications with AIDS. And um, what it put that rural community hospital through in terms of adjusting to that and knowing how to respond because it still was the days where a lot of people thought, well, how do you catch this disease? And there was a lot of misinformation out there. And so the hospital and nurses hadn't dealt with that either. And, um, you know, a young Aboriginal man. So that really brought it to the fore in that community as well, because a lot of people knew the family, knew the young man. And how did the community face it and cope with it in that moment? Very, very mixed, but I think because... There was a personal connection for many people that um, that then there was a increased interest in, oh, we've got to do something about this and we've got to educate people so it doesn't happen to more people. And, um, you know, and that there was actually quite a degree of compassion. So that was happening on one side. And then on the other side, there was also, you know, a group that was quite vehement and um, anti-gay and hostile and blamed gay people and um, were in denial about there being gay people, lesbians, queer, bisexual, sister-girl, brother, boys, or anything like that in the Aboriginal community. There was Aboriginal pastors who came down very heavily and said it was never a part of traditional culture. I found that really ironic, given that um, Christianity was something that was introduced with uh, colonisation. Mm. Um, the feeling for me and the feeling for many other people who did identify as um, gay or lesbian was to keep it secret if you could. (laughs) Um, And if it did come out, it was often not met very well. And I definitely had that experience of of being ridiculed and um, having co-workers um, basically say they didn't want to work with me, uh, even though they were working in health. And I had the opposite. I had other people who said, you know, that's great and you're really brave and how can we support you? So it was very mixed, definitely very mixed. I did know a lot of um, people around my same age, or not a lot, but a few people around my same age that really mentally fell apart um, and a couple who actually took their lives because they didn't feel that they had any place in the community. So that was very, very sad. Mm. Um yeah, as a woman, as an Aboriginal woman, I found it quite hard um, because if you were a gay man, it seemed there was a little bit more freedom um, within the community. Uh, but if being a woman, there was very much a sense of I'd go to things and, and be very conscious that I didn't have a man with me and very conscious at that time that I didn't have children and that people were sort of wondering and uh, guessing what was going on. Um, and it really wasn't very safe to come out completely to everyone, and particularly in the work environment, there was definitely a threat that um, you might lose your job or be completely ostracised, even though I was working in HIV, AIDS and sexual health. That that did give me a bit of a freedom to come out more, and that's basically what I did do, and actually you know, announced that I was a lesbian and that that's you know, what my identity was, and... Um, and uh, the more I did that, the more I was able to then work with people and develop programs around raising awareness and artworks and concerts and various sort of creative things that we did at that time.
You've been hearing from Samia Gaudi. Before that, you heard from Sandy O'Sullivan and Laniac Garçon. They are three of the 22 contributors to the new book, Colouring the Rainbow, Black, Queer and Trans Perspectives. The book is recently published by Wakefield Press and proceeds from sales go to Anthem, a not-for-profit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander AIDS awareness and prevention organisation. You can find a copy of the book for sale on the Wakefield Press website. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Programme. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website www.3cr.org.au slash women on the line. You can also follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. You've also heard from Emma Donovan on the show. I'm Nicole Kirby. I hope you can tune in again next time. <laughs>